And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Peg. Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here today and ask you to take your Bibles if you haven't already and get to work. Father, we are thankful today that we have this text on dark days and what it means to experience um, pain as uh, a follower of yours. And um, I pray today that you would use this text to minister grace um, to some people who need to hear that you really understand what's going on in their world and that it isn't pointless. Lord, I believe there's some folks today that today is a divine appointment. You've brought them here for the very reason of um, for them to be able to hear a, a word from you. Uh, and so we pray that you'd illumine to us this text from Matthew 13 and 14. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is an enigma, and that's the title of our series. He's puzzling, at times he's confusing. He says things that sometimes don't really make sense or seem to almost be backwards. For instance, he says that in the midst of great sacrifice, there can also be great joy. He says things like, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it. He says in John 12, that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, if you've 
read the Bible and you're familiar with phrases like that, that's a, a kind of a, a common verse. But if you've never heard that before, the teachings of Jesus almost seem to be backwards, upside down. I'm going to lose my life, I'm going to find it, I find it, I lose it. What, what is this all about? This is the enigma of who Jesus is. And as we saw last week, what Jesus offers in the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is something more valuable than what you can possibly imagine. Jesus offers the gospel, which is that through his death, burial, and resurrection, a sinful human being can be brought back to their creator God by receiving Christ as their savior, repenting of their sins, and Jesus then makes that person a new creation. And the Bible tells us that when that is understood, when God gives you the spiritual eyesight to see this reality, that I could be in a right relationship with my creator, that that reality, that beauty, the value, the worthiness of that kingdom eclipses everything else. It's so much more beautiful, attractive, appealing, um, so much more worthwhile of your affection than anything that you can possibly imagine in this lifetime. However, that doesn't mean that the everything else in life goes away. That's why the word eclipse is so important. You see, the joy of what the gospel is and the beauty of the kingdom of heaven doesn't mean that all the hard stuff evaporates. No, it means that in the midst of all of the hard stuff, you're able to navigate those waters because you know what is truly valuable. Hurtful words, malicious gossip, rejection from family or friends, subtle comments, or even outright active opposition are usually a part of a disciple's life. In fact, Jesus himself in John 16 promised that we would have tribulation. He said this, in this world you will have tribulation. The hope in that verse is not that the tribulation will not come, because he says it will. The hope is the latter part of the verse where he says, but I have overcome the world. So tribulation is here, it's real, but I have overcome the world. So I see that part of my role as your pastor is to help you understand what embracing the kingdom of heaven is. Particularly if you're, um, if you're a child, you're a teenager, you're a college student, I want you to listen very carefully to me. Just listen carefully. I want you to understand that as you grow in your relationship with Christ, hard things are going to happen. People are going to say things that are cruel. Things are going to happen to your life that you feel like are just so evil and wrong. And if you're not prepared for the fact that that's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, then when those hard things come, if you're not prepared for it, you'll be shocked and you'll think that God is either out of control, that he's not powerful, or maybe he's even a fraud. You might wonder, if God is good, then why do bad things happen to me? And what the Bible tells us is that bad things happening to those who know Christ are, is part of the equation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Part of my role also as your pastor is to try and help prepare all of us for when that day comes. That you would, in the moment of that testing, in the moment of that trial, be able to grab a hold of anchor truths from the Word of God that will make your heart soar when trials, difficulties, pain come into your world and your orbit. Today, we're going to look at a text that is a dark day in Jesus' life. Uh, two different um, portraits, if you will. The first is of a situation where Jesus is rejected by his hometown. The second is of the execution of John the Baptist. And 
The linkage between these two stories is the word unbelief. Because both stories show us what happens when unbelief takes root. In the first case, people don't believe in who Jesus is, and so they reject him. They won't hear his truth as truth, and so they just say, get out of here, and he leaves. In the other case, with Herod, he refuses to believe who Jesus is, Jesus is and then somehow attributes his power to John the Baptist, and that unfolds for us this guilty conscience that Herod has because of what he did to John the Baptist. So unbelief is at the root. And what I want you to see here is that the consequences of unbelief in the life of a believer mean that some pretty difficult things can happen. And then at the end, I want to show you how Jesus is the perfect example of having experienced these two realities of personal rejection and also senseless violence. So the first, unbelief can create personal rejection. I want you to remember that before we got into our section in parables, we had left off with Jesus' family coming and wanting to speak with him. And according to Mark's account in Mark 3.21, they came and talked to Jesus because they were concerned that he had lost his mind. They, they thought he has gone crazy. And then right after these parables are finished, as we wrapped them up last week, Matthew then tells us that Jesus leaves Capernaum, where he's been ministering, and he heads for, for Nazareth, which is his hometown. And Jesus will receive the same reaction in Nazareth, where he grew up, as he received in Capernaum, and that will be just outright, blatant rejection. But this time, it becomes even more personal. According to verse 54, Jesus, when he arrives at Nazareth, goes to the synagogue. The synagogue was a religious outpost for those who lived too far to Jerusalem. So they couldn't go to worship in Jerusalem on a weekly or monthly basis, so they built synagogues. They were teaching centers, cultural centers, and everyone would gather of the Jewish faith on the Sabbath, and they would observe um, their religious ordinances, their teaching time together. And Jesus, when he arrives in Nazareth, goes to the synagogue, and as a part of their worship experience, uh, a person in the community or perhaps a traveling speaker would come and make comment on a particular text that was read. And apparently Jesus does this. The text tells us that he began to teach the people, and verse 54 says, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? They were astonished. That, that word astonished is an interesting word. It means to shock. It means to create panic. It means to amaze. And it, and it, it comes from two words that are put together in the original language, which means to strike and out of. So the idea is a sense of striking something or even blowing at something because you're shocked. Now, I, I get this because when, my, when I'm sitting there with my wife like in our backyard and our kids do something that is astonishing, like scary, I, I, I'll do this to her. Did you see that? Right? And I'll hit her. Right? Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Did you see that? Or someone says something, you know, like you're at a party with somebody and you're hanging out and someone says something that's just so astonishing. You ever done one of these numbers? They're like... I mean, so you get little signals, you know, underneath the table. Do you hear that? That's what that is. It's this astonishment. Or to, to blow uh, the strike out thing is, um, you know, when someone says something that you just can't believe, it's so just shocking. What do you do? <laughs> right? That's what you do. Right? Tell me you've done that, right? So last week I did that while I was reading the Indy Star. I came across an article. Actually, it was a commentary um, on um, uh, Landis, the, um, the guy who... Uh, 2006 won the Tour de France and then had it uh, taken away. And, um, you know, he came out 
a week or so ago that he actually did end up do the whole the, the whole blood doping thing. And the commentary was about all the lies that he told. He published a book. The title of it was Positively False, The Real Story of How I Won the Tour de France. Tour de France. It was twenty four ninety five, by the way, in the stores. And um, the first line of the first chapter was, quote, I have nothing to hide. And I read that, and as I was reading it, I just went, right? I'm, a, I'm astonished. I'm shocked. I'm appalled. And, and what the text tells us here is that's what was going on in the synagogue, is that the people were were appalled that Jesus was saying these things. They were shocked. And the tone was that they really couldn't believe that these words were coming out of his mouth. So what do they do? Well, they do what people often do when they are not comfortable with what's being said. They attack the messenger. And notice they ask five questions. First, actually, they're really veiled statements. None of these are questions because they know all the answers. They're sarcastic questions meant to highlight the fact that they don't believe in him. Verse 54, the first question is, where did this man get his wisdom and get these mighty works? Next question, verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? Next question, verse 55, is this not, is not Mary, his mother? Verse 55, are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And verse 56, are not all his sisters with us? So do you see what they're doing here? What they're, what they're doing is they're taking what they see in terms of his power and his authority, and they will not accept it. And so therefore, they're saying, who does this guy think he is? They dismiss Jesus because they know him. They know his past. They know his background. And what they're doing is they're minimizing his word by an ad hominem attack. Something like, God does special things through people, but not your kind. We know you. What's your trick? Or, you might put it in our kind of vernacular, this guy's too big for his britches. He came from the wrong side of the tracks. Or, as Jim Persley, pastor down at College Park Columbus, said in a staff meeting about two weeks ago, he's living above his raisin. <laughs> I don't know exactly what that means, but it seems to fit. <laughs> you see, one commentary says this, in view of his family connections, they are reasoning his rightful place was in their own community, doing the things that villagers did. He had no business teaching people and doing miracles. In their mind, they cut him down to size. He didn't fit their category, so they rejected him. In other words, he wasn't playing by the party rules anymore. And the result was they took an offense at him. The word offense means a, a, a bait that's in a trap, and when an animal would touch the bait, the trap would set in motion. And so therefore, they viewed Jesus' words as dangerous, as causing trouble. And what was happening here is that Jesus was invading the status quo of their lives, and they could not accept it, especially from Him. So therefore, they assailed Him. And to that, Jesus says in verse 57, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. So here's the deal. Jesus knows what many of you know to be true in this room. And it's this, that it's often those who are closest to us, who are the most skeptical and the strongest opponents of the work of God in our lives. I've seen this play out so many times. Somebody begins to change their life. God begins to do a work in their life. And much to my surprise, as a counselor, trying to help them move on, 
the most difficult people to often deal with in their change are immediate family members. And there's a number of reasons for this. For instance, pride. This person begins to change and folks in their inner circle are like, you're not better than us. Don't you be changing. You start changing, we're going to have to start changing. Or bitterness. Oh, I've seen this so many times. Someone begins to change. God begins to do a work in their life. And people around them are like, there's no way that person is ever going to change. Same song, 4,000th verse. And they won't believe it. Or selfishness. There's a kind of a decorum and an attitude and actions that go along with a family or friend group. And one person begins to change. And suddenly now that group begins to feel, you know what? You start changing, you're going to make me look bad. So you feel guilty about what we've been doing? Well, what's that say about me? I don't want to feel guilty, so you shouldn't feel guilty. Stop changing, because your changing is making me look bad. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Every Christmas, every Thanksgiving, maybe a cookout this afternoon, or maybe on Monday afternoon is going to make life really difficult for you, because all the great things that God is doing in your life are the very thing you cannot share. And when you do share them with closest people who are supposed to be close to you, they actually reject it, and what they try and do is balance the scales. So those of you who know exactly what I'm talking about, I just want to encourage you with one thing. That experience of being different than your family or your close circle of friends because of what God is doing in your heart and their rejection of that does not mean you've done anything wrong. In fact, I would tell you it's the way it's supposed to be. It ought to scare those of us who all of the circle of influence that we have, there's really no pushback. It's just everyone's, we're in the bubble, the Christian bubble, and everyone we hang with thinks like us and Reality is this rejection that Jesus feels from his hometown and even from his own family is deeply personal and at the root of all of it is unbelief. Unbelief. A failure to believe that either God is real or that the work of Jesus is real. And even though you'd think that the people who were closest to us would know and love what God was doing in our lives, often that isn't the case. And when that rejection sets in, this is very personal. But here's the thing, and this is what I hope will sink into some of your hearts today. Jesus knows all about it. He knows all about it. We're going to come back to this thought in just a moment. Notice here, secondly, in the story of Herod, that unbelief could also create seemingly senseless violence. Unbelief can create seemingly senseless violence. Matthew 14 records that Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. Apparently what happens here is that Jesus and his miracles and his teaching, the news of that began to spread, and Herod apparently finds out about it, and he, he responds in an interesting way. He says to his servants, quote, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miracles and these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now what you're hearing is a guilty conscience and a ruler loaded with fear. And the reason he's nervous, he's, he's not making an observation like, Oh, I think this is John the Baptist. No, this is a panic statement. This is the guy, he circles in his room, he's like, this, this guy, this guy, this guy, this is John the Baptist, he's back. He's back from the dead. And then Matthew gives us the flashback to tell us why Herod would be freaking out. And the reason is, is because Herod 
killed John the Baptist. Verse 3, Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying, it is not lawful for you to have here. Now this Herod is not Herod the Great, the one who built the temple in Jerusalem, the one who was in charge at Jesus' birth. This is Herod Antipas, Herod the Great's son. In fact, the text says Herod the Tetrarch because after Herod the Great died in 4 BC, Rome divvied up the province of Israel into four different regions and took four of Herod's sons and appointed them to be rulers over these areas. So he's hardly a king. He's a puppet governor. So that's why he's called Herod the Tetrarch. He ruled this area of Galilee, Herod Antipas. Now, Years earlier, to understand the background, Antipas, Herod Antipas, had married the daughter of a non-Israelite king named Eratos. They'd married, it's kind of a political union, and then over time, um, Herod Antipas fell in love with a woman named Herodias. There were three problems with his affections for Herodias. First, he was already married. Second, She was already married. And third, Herodias was married to his half-brother, Philip. Everybody say, gross. So in order to fulfill their desire to be married, Antipas and Herodias left their marriages and unlawfully married each other. Well, the spurned wife of Antipas, this daughter of this non-Israelite king, ran back to her father, and Eratos sent a force of, of, um, of his army to attack northern Galilee. And if Rome hadn't stepped in, the northern area of Israel would have been lost. All because of Antipas's affection for this woman named Herodias. Well, in the middle of all of this, kind of this political intrigue and all of this kind of national inquirer sort of material that's going on in the nation of Israel, there, there's political intrigue that's happening. Here goes John the Baptist, who's traveling around the, the region, and he's calling out Antipas for his unlawful marriage. And he's saying, it's not lawful. What you did is wrong. And all the people are going, mm-hmm, that's right, it's wrong. And Herod's getting a little nervous because John's starting to stir some things up. So in the name of national security, he put him in prison. His rule is hanging by a thread. He needed John out of the picture and he couldn't stop him in terms of his preaching. So he locked him up. But then he couldn't kill him because he was popular. However, the text tells us that Herod changed his mind. Verse 6 indicates that Herod hosted a birthday party. Had a bunch of his... His friends in. They're all hanging out, having a good old time. In the midst of that party, Herodias' daughter came and danced for the party guests. i got to tell you, she wasn't doing country-western line dancing. That was not what's going on here. We don't know exactly what kind of dance it was, but my guess it was some sort of risque dance, because Herod, in this sort of half-drunken statement, makes an oath about whatever you want up to half my kingdom, I'll give it to you. Well, Herod's daughter saw an opportunity, so she consulted with her mom as to what she should ask for, and they asked, shockingly, that he give them the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And Herod was stuck. Stuck between his concern for the popularity of John the Baptist and also stuck between his fear of what his friends would think of him and his power if he said, no, I can't do that. Mark 3 says, so the king was exceedingly sorry But because of his oaths and his guests, meaning because of his fear of man, he didn't want to break his word to her. 
So he ordered John to be executed by the dishonorable means of beheading, and his severed head was brought to the party. I mean, just imagine what this is like. Verse 11 and 12 wraps up the story. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And then verse 12, and his disciples came, John's disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now just, just stop for a moment with me and consider what's going on here. Here is the great forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist, of whom Jesus says there's no one on the earth greater than him. He spoke the truth, he's arrested for political reasons, and he's executed. He has his head cut off on the whim of a king who was more concerned about pleasing his wife, daughter, and his drunken guest than he was about doing what was right. Here is an Elijah-like figure who's known for his bold and kind of in-your-face preaching, and he's killed because of a lascivious, paranoid king who won't do what's right. Herod killed John out of fear, and then he refused to believe who Jesus claimed to be, and the end game of John the Baptist's life was not some big battle, not some big Hollywood finish. It's the dark drape of a wicked king, and it almost seems like this is how it ends. This is, no, no, this isn't, this isn't how it ends. The good guys win. The guys with the, with, the white, with the white hats, they come riding in at the end, and the sun goes down, they ride off, and everything's fine. No, that's not the way this story ends. In fact, that's not how many stories in life end. Which is why I'm really grateful for this text and others like it. So this account shows us the unbelief of Herod, but it also shows us that there are moments when God allows what seems to be senseless violence to be brought on his choice servants. I mean, everything about Herod is wrong, and everything about John is right, and yet John the Baptist's life ends because of the whim and the weak need will of a lascivious king. So, put these two passages together with me for a moment. Jesus is rejected by his hometown and his family. And John the Baptist is beheaded by a wicked ruler who cares more about saving face than he does about justice. This this is a dark day. And I don't know about you, but I am really glad that this kind of stuff is in the Bible. You know why? Because if you follow Jesus very long, you're going to have some really, really dark days. You're going to have some days when you wonder, so what's, what's the point in this? Maybe you have something in your past as you look back on and at the hands of wicked people, people did stuff to you that is just plain wrong. Or you're trying to live for Christ and you're trying to share things with your family and the reality is your family, your friends are saying, you know what, you're not so great, you're just a hypocrite. If everyone in that church knew who you really were or what you did in the past, they wouldn't even let you in the door. And you're living constantly with this rejection and this sense of, Seemingly senseless violence. And the reason that these kind of texts are in the Bible is to help us know that this was not only the experience of other people in the Scriptures, it was also the experience of the Son of God. Now there's a lot of things that I could say to try and help you when you kind of walk through this kind of moment in your life. What I want to do is give you three that are really simple statements 
there's nothing profound about them, and I made them as simple as I could, so hopefully you would remember them and they would come back into your mind when dark days come in your life. And here they are. The first is this, is that Jesus really understands. As I was working through this message, I was reminded over and over that if there was anybody on the earth who knew what it was like to be rejected, if there was anybody who knew what it was like to suffer violence at the hands of wicked men, there's no greater example of this than Jesus. And this made me so grateful for the incarnation of Christ that I I not only have a God that I can pray to, who the Bible describes, but I have a Savior who came and took on flesh and walked on this earth so that He knows exactly what it's like to feel the weight of the environment of the earth, the, the, the difficulty of the presence of sin in the world, and the fact that difficult and painful things happen. Here's a man whose family didn't understand him, who religious rulers wanted to kill him, his hometown ridiculed him, an inner circle follower betrayed him. They've been betrayed. And then at the end of his life, all of his disciples, even the big boasting ones who said, I'll never leave you, they're all gone. And there he is hanging on the cross. He's all alone from an earthly standpoint. And then in the climax of redemption, he is abandoned. The full wrath of the Father is poured out upon him as he is not only abandoned by sinful people, but he's abandoned in a holy wrath by the Father. Jesus faced rejection beyond which we can even possibly understand. But then there's even more. He, more than any other human being, faced abuse and injustice at the hands of wicked people. No greater crime ever committed than the crime committed against the execution of Jesus. And unbelief and wickedness reached their most sinister moment at the cross. And what happens is that Jesus understands unfairness and mistreatment in a way that we can barely even comprehend. Now, why do I tell you all that? I tell you that so that when you get into a hard spot and you feel like this hurts, this is hard, there's no book, there's no, your, your spouse can't meet this need. A, a counselor can't fully help you in dealing with this. At the end of the day, you know what you need? You need the personal presence of Jesus to minister to your heart. When you feel rejected or there's things that are coming at you from a wicked, sinful world, the thing that you need to cling to, the anchor for your heart, is nothing less than you understand Jesus. And that I have a Savior who really gets the reality of what it means to live in my world. So hear me. You are never alone. Never. Take your Bibles. Let's go to Hebrews 4. I want you to see this. Because the writer of Hebrews, in in awe of what is Christ's role as this high priest, tells us that there's a, a sympathy that we have in and through the person of Jesus. Verse 14, Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You see, that's the goal. Hold fast. Don't let go. And how do you not let go? Well, next verse is key. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 
So here's the hope. When the dark side comes, remember you are not alone. Jesus knows what it's like to face rejection, and he also knows what it's like to face violence. Secondly, Satan and evil are not free. Meaning, it is way too easy when hardship or difficulty comes to think two things. I can't bear this, or there's no point to this. Those are two things that are very common to the human heart. Something happens, comes your direction, that seems unfair, and you're like, I can't deal with this, or there's no point to this. And those two things, if left unabated, can lead to an erosion of your belief. It can allow you to believe the lie that Satan and evil have unlimited power. Go to Psalm 73. I love the, the, the gutsy honesty of Psalm 73 because it, it, it talks about life in a way that I find helpful because it sounds like me sometimes. And yet I also love the resolution, the way in which the psalmist helps us to think and see things more clearly. Tell me if this doesn't describe something you've ever thought. Begin in verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You ever felt like that? The guy at work, he's wicked, he's rude, he's ruthless, he climbs over top of people, he leaves body bags, and they just keep promoting him, and I'm the nice guy, and I'm at the bottom of the ladder looking up. You ever said to the Lord, I'm doing what's right, and it's not working. Verse 4, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Come on, you've thought that. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. See what he's he's saying? It's pointless. I do all this stuff to try and walk in godliness, and what does it get me? Nothing. Ever felt like that? Verse 14, all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of the children. So he just keeps his mouth shut because he's afraid. If I talk about God, I'm really worried what I'm going to say. And now look at verse 16. Notice the resolution. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Newsflash, you need Sunday morning or your heart will think the wicked man always wins. You look at the world, you look at who's famous, who's rich, who's powerful, who's doing all this stuff, you look at all that, you need the Lord's Day to remind you, no, 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 no. I went into the sanctuary and then I understood their end. You need the Word of God to help you understand how to think when hardship or difficulties come. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. Here's another one. Here's a Pauline one, from, one from the Apostle Paul, where he's recounting all of the difficulties that have come his way and how at one point he even thought, look, this is going to kill me. I, this, is, this is crushing me. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 8. He says, 
We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. As soon as the Apostle Paul saying, look, when we were in Asia, things were happening to us, and we thought we were going to die. We thought we had received the sentence of death. It looks like, well, this is it. We're just, it's, it's all going down. And then what he says in verse 9 is so key. But that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I got news for you. When you look at life and you think there's no way we can make this and all we've got is God, as I said last week, you have everything you need and suffering has the beautiful ability to help you cling to Christ in new and glorious ways. And what you need to be reminded of is that Satan and evil are not free. Everything is a part of God's plan. You just don't see how right now. Even John the Baptist's death. Can you imagine being his disciple here in the story? What happened to him? They cut off his head? Why did they do that? Because his little daughter danced? She did a jig and they cut off his head? That's how he died? I mean, that's not the way you recruit more disciples. Yeah, that's just, that's just not a very cool way to describe the summit, so to speak, of how you're going to go out of life. I mean, the way you're supposed to die when you're a prophet... I was telling someone this between service, is that you do your third point and you have a heart attack. You're like, and then finally, oh, and then you die on stage. It's a boom, you know, that's, that's the way you're supposed to go out. That's the way you design it. You're not in a prison because some little girl did a dance and then you get your head cut off. That's, that's a dark day. Finally, Jesus is ready to help. The question that we have to think about here is why would God tell us about these dark days in Jesus' life? One reason is to highlight the unbelief of Capernaum, Nazareth, Jesus' family. Another reason would be to highlight the unbelief of Pharaoh, or on Herod rather. But there's another. And I think that it is so that you'll be motivated to run to Jesus when you experience the dark days of trying to live out the kingdom. That when things really get tough, that you'll know where you can run. It's the conclusion that the writer of Hebrews came to in Hebrews 4, 16. Listen, it says, So let us come boldly. This comes after this passage about him being the great high priest. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So why is it important that you know that Jesus understands? Why is it important that you know he's in control of all things? So that when things get really difficult, the question then is, where will you run? Last passage, go to 1 Peter 4. The Lord brought this passage across my path just this morning, and I, it just it reminded me again of what He can do in the midst of a difficult and dark moment. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 13 and 14. Today I want to call you that when you're in the midst of a dark day and you feel like, you know what, this isn't fair, this is hard, there's rejection here, there seems like just pointless violence, that you remember you can run to Christ. And when you run to Him, He is ready to pour out mercy and grace to help. There's been so many times in my lifetime I have said, Jesus, you understand, now help me. Help me. And here's First Peter 4. 
13. Rejoice insofar as much as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In other words, in the moment when you are being assailed or you feel like life is falling apart, that is when Jesus shows up with such sweet grace by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is a sense of peace and security that you can't even believe unless you're in the throes and the thick of the crucible of hardship. I remember being in a meeting one time and and having a person just get in my grill about how upset they were over something that had happened. And the person said this. I mean, they were just spitting venom when they said, You failed me as my pastor! And it hurt so bad. And then the next moment, grace and peace floods my soul. And it's like, Jesus, you are right here. You're going to help me know what to say. You're going to help me know what to feel, and you are going to help me know what to do. I am not alone. Following Jesus, friends, means that dark days will come, and when they do, you must anchor your heart to the fact that Jesus understands the fact that Satan and evil are not free, and that he is ready and willing to help you. There's an old Swedish hymn. That I remember singing as a kid that came to mind day by day and with each passing moment. It's loaded with great theology here. Sing this with me, will you? Day by day and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here in the words, trusting in. not alone. Satan is not free, and he is ready to help you. That's what we learn in dark days, beloved. 
So risen Christ, thank you that you give us in your word these important truths so that our hearts, when they are assailed, when toil and trouble meeting, that we can rest ever to take from a Father's hand one by one the days, the moments fleeting until we reach the promised land of the kingdom of heaven. Oh, Lord, I pray today you would pour out mercy and grace on people in this room who will hear this message over the Internet. Lord, a sense of your personal presence that today they can know you understand, you are here, you are ready to help and to pour out grace and mercy. And so, Lord, help them to practice the personal presence of Christ who was rejected, beaten, and then raised again, who now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our King, our conqueror, and our healer, and our help. And we ask this in your name. Amen.